continue our discussion of the new birth from chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 in our Bible lessons from the first epistle of John. We have read these words, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. We have had the wonderful declaration in the Bible that God has created man in his own image. This involves the capacity of fellowship, and thus the very essence of man's life was to be his association, fellowship, and reactions with the great God of the heavens. Because of sin, God has had to withdraw his manifestations to the mind and heart of man. The new birth is nothing else than a restoration of this glorious fellowship with the life of God and the energizing force of the Holy Spirit being released within the soul of man. Obviously, as we have discussed, man must be willing to repent of his sin or to forsake his sin because the new birth is an actual change in our manner of life. Now do we bring about this great change or transformation by ourselves, we may ask. If we were left to ourselves, could we find this new life by merely turning about in our ways and setting out in the opposite direction? Emphatically, no. We can indeed turn from all sin, but can we remove the dreadful consequences of sin within, assuming that God would remove its penalty from before him? If we would live in a holy manner of life for 50 years, the sins of our youth would still be staring us in the face, and ever increasingly so, and their dreadful consequences upon us, affecting us daily. Thus we are utterly helpless to remove the consequences of our sins upon ourselves. On the other hand, God is utterly helpless to remove these consequences within us unless we are willing to renounce sin with all the force of our wills and be entirely willing to be separated from it because the new birth is a restoration to the life of God and a transformation into an entirely new manner of life. The new birth is the new life, but certain things must take place before this actuality can begin. This is aptly described in our text, which has been rendered, has come to be and is remaining begotten. This tense, as has often been said, involves a process or a period of time when certain things were taking place. Then a climax or culmination as a result of these events, and lastly, the present existence of the accomplished results. Certain things were taking place which came to result in a momentous moment when true heavenly consciousness began, which results will always remain as an indelible impression upon the soul. Not that everyone so born will be finally saved, but that the results of the new birth can never be erased. How mournful to find one of God's true children living in the commission and practice of sin.
Have the results of a holy consciousness been lost? Can such a one have comparative ease in sin as before? Nay, rather, there is great agitation of soul. Sin must be dealt with before the new birth can become an actuality. There must be repentance before any dealing can take place. But in the depths of mournful repentance, the Holy Spirit makes real and vivid the sufferings of Jesus to the soul, so that we truly perceive the awfulness of our sins and the extensiveness of the love of the Godhead that would undertake such extensive measures. This, you recall, is what the Lord Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when he was bestowed upon the world. This must be some kind of a process, for God cannot take rebels into his kingdom without their being aware of the true nature of their actions. It seems that in Paul's life it lasted three days, when he was without sight and neither ate nor drank, we are told. After this time Ananias was sent as God's messenger in order that thou mightest recover thy sight and be filled of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts 9, verse 9 and 17. Paul's own commentary, after he had received his sight again, was that he should arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on his name. It is during this time of intense dealing by the Holy Spirit that our death to the ways of sin become an actuality. Apart from it, we would take up our sins anew. It is a being crucified together with Jesus and a being buried together with him, from which we arise by his grace to a newness of life. Why should those who deal with souls hurry these persons through this period of conviction, just as though the Spirit of God were not dealing directly with their souls? They must slay multitudes in this way and unknowingly oppose the operations of God. The process, indeed, need not be as long as it was with the beloved Apostle Paul, but it must be long enough to achieve the end of true sin consciousness and what it has cost God. No one can set the time, as some seem to be struck down all at once. One thing is certain. The soul must be truly humbled before God and truly perceive the import of his past doings and the true nature of holiness. He must hear the thunderings of Mount Sinai and the law and tremble under the righteous wrath of God. Why should he not do this a little bit? Why should he be spared the true consciousness of what he has done to the great heart of God? Shall not other sinners be brought before the throne of God to answer for their works and to receive their doom? Is it a small thing to escape from them now and have them set aside forever? Why should preachers then so spare sinners? Is it too much for them to hear God's mighty thunderings for an hour? Should not a rebel against the kingdom of God, standing on the threshold of having all his revelry put aside forever by the abounding mercy of God, view himself for at least a time as God has always seen him to be? This is absolutely essential. How can he turn to holiness if he does not comprehend the awfulness of his sinful ways? Impossible. But God is the judge of the duration, and a sinner ought to be left alone to seek the face of God until God lifts him up in mercy, 
and draws him into his great bosom. Will God delay this process of conviction further than necessary? Oh, how wonderful to observe the dealings of God. Shall not sinners taste of the divine grief over sin and know by experience how God feels? Indeed, this is tremendously small in the face of actualities. God suffers over them for years, they only for a short time, and then together with someone, not alone. Jesus suffered alone. None could share his grief, but not so with us now. We suffer together with the Lord Jesus, the scripture affirms. It is the consciousness of how he suffered for us to bring us back to the mercy and love of the Godhead that slays and renders us dead unto sin. How can we go on in that which has cost God so much is our will. There can be no omission of this part of our salvation, and the more complete the comprehension, the more firm our spiritual walk will be, and the faster we will grow in spiritual things. Having viewed our sins for a brief time in the light of Calvary, the weight of the conscience becomes tremendous and seems as though it would break. Something must be done, but then we begin truly to perceive by the uplifted eye of faith that the sufferings of Jesus are the balm to take away forever our sins. Their healing power as applied by ourselves in response to the drawing and beckoning power of the Holy Spirit avails for our cleansing, and we lay hold of the feet of Jesus by faith and cleave to him with all our might as our only hope. This faith for our salvation or a believing unto him avails in a glorious manner. We see that this is not a mental state, but an act of the will in laying hold of the provided salvation of the gospel. It is so often said that we are active in the cleansing of our sins that this cannot be denied. Truly, none can come except drawn of the Father, indeed, as the Scripture affirms. But also, we ourselves must apply the God-given remedy. At this very moment of the application or committal of faith, the tremendous act of forgiveness of past sins takes place in the heavens, in the Father's heart. He puts aside out of his mercy all the charges against us. Oh, wondrous thought! How sweet is pardon! And now what? Are we left alone now that we have been perfectly cleansed and all guilt put away? No, no. Now God has great delight over us. Now God can release the great stored-up love of his great heart. And this he does in the person of the Holy Spirit, who baptizes us into his great presence, or fills us with himself, so that we abound to overflowing of the loving presence of the Godhead. This is the new birth, a restoration to glorious manifestation. This is the series of events that will never be forgotten, and after which one can never be the same. Praise be to the Godhead forever and forever. Now we begin to live a life truly worthy of the name life, and thus it is called the life, as if that were enough to describe it. This is the riches of God's condescending grace to man. Oh, blessed experience! The New Testament pictures such a one as not habitually thereafter 
living in sin or in unrighteousness. How can he? He has been united to Jesus in a spiritual marriage and has been made conscious of the living Christ who has promised never to leave him alone. And thus we see that the glorious new birth is a restoration to the manifested life of God, a forgiveness of sin, and a happy pathway in obedient submission through the manifested presence of the Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, apply to our hearts these wonderful promises of thy blessed word. Help us to see the glorious reality of spiritual birth and the necessary forsaking of our sin and the wonderful relief of the committal of faith for the forgiveness of sin. These things we ask in Jesus' name, recommending thee to everyone. Amen.